This is the current federal tax developments for the week of December the 6th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. Med Zoller is broadcasting this week from Phoenix, and we're going to be talking this week about the few developments we had come up during the week. This wasn't a super busy week for tax developments, but we did have a few things. First thing, we had an interesting uh, tax court case that looked at when a spouse is deemed to have given tacit consent for filing a joint return, even when, as in this case, it was pretty much admitted that although there was a signature on the return that purported to be her signature, it was not actually her signature. It's a little bit of an odd situation that deals with how they tended to handle their returns. It actually had been doing for, for a lo- doing so for a long time. Um, and some concerns that she had about signing anything. So, you know, it's an interesting case, but nevertheless, the taxpayers were trying to argue that uh, she was not part of this return, I would think presumably because they were going to try to, uh, for collection purposes, isolate her assets away from any potential liabilities for this. So we'll talk about how that one ran out. We also have a couple of IRS emails dealing with the Bipartisan Budget Act partnership or centralized partnership audit regime, give it its full name. Uh, You may remember that was passed in 2015, came into effect a couple of years ago. Now we're really starting to see things happen in that area. And we have a couple of emails internally in the IRS that deal with a couple of very specific issues regarding this regime. And it couple of things that tells us the mere existence of this information, where we have the IRS emailing back and forth, does suggest there's actual IRS activity going on in this area. Certainly heard about such things, and uh, obviously somebody's asking these questions, it means there's a real exam somewhere, or somebody's considering an issue. So we'll talk about that. The first one looks at a concept that they discuss called a money number that does not give rise to an item of income deduction gain, loss, or credit, and how that factors into the Bipartisan Budget Act audit regime if it is a number that is maintained by the partnership as a partnership item as opposed to one that is merely being maintained by the partner. So we'll talk about the differences there. The email discusses this and actually gives us a couple of examples of one thing that would be an adjustment at the partnership level that would give rise to impute adjustment and one that wouldn't. We also have a discussion, which interestingly enough came up and was released earlier this week, or I saw it for the first time earlier this week, on a break uh, when I was giving a session. And it was actually a question that had been asked during the session. So it was a question, and actually I should say that I was actually monitoring a session that was a rebroadcast. I was involved in doing that, you know, sitting here watching it go by, had a question come up early in the morning, and by the afternoon, uh, I had an IRS email that actually answered the question, so I'll deal with the question here as well, which looks at what happens if you have an exempt organization as a partner, does that destroy the partnership's ability to opt out of the Bipartisan Budget Act audit regime on that year's return, and we'll talk about how that works. But let's start first with our story of the spouses. And this particular case is Sony versus Commissioner, Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2021-137. The opinion came down on December the 1st. 
And this was an interesting joint return situation. The taxpayers, in this case, we have an IRS exam. We're not going to worry about why the exam's going on, uh, what the issue was, etc. Our key item here is going to look at whether or not the taxpayer, in this case the wife, Angeli, had actually consented to filing a joint return. The taxpayers were arguing, as I mentioned, that because the signature on the return, everybody admitted the signature on the return was not that of Angeli. So the question became, does that mean that, in fact, she's not bound by this return? And more importantly, she wouldn't be liable for any tax found due on the exam of this joint return. It would merely be her husband. As I note, we don't actually know the whole background of why they want this to be true. But I suspect a key aspect of that is that she may have significant assets because uh, they did say she had significant, she had passive income. She didn't have any of the earned income, but she did generate a passive income that was hers, meaning there may be some inherited funds that she was holding that are in her name, and they would prefer not to have those available uh, for purposes of being, you know, taken for assessing a tax on an issue and a problem that arose from his business. So, don't really know for sure, but that's kind of our background. In this case, though, it was kind of interesting uh, why it wasn't her signature on the return. And this goes through an interesting discussion that they talked about here. Uh, you know, she'd been used to a, as I said, an affluent lifestyle throughout her life. That was kind of the background here. But she did not become involved in any way with her family's financial matters. She indicated clearly she was uninterested in such matters. Um, she really, even for mail and things like that, if mail came in from the IRS or anything like that, it was handled a little bit unusually. Uh, generally, her house, the housekeeper would pick up the mail. And if mail came in, you know, that was addressed to her, She'd be given her mail. She mainly was concerned, it was said in this, with her magazines and the like. And if any letter was addressed to both her and her husband, or was addressed to her husband, it essentially got sent down to his office, and his office staff went through it. And it was taken care of there. She admitted that if a tax item came in the mail, she considered that to be her husband's issue, because her husband took care of all finances. And therefore, she would say she'd let it sit for weeks, if necessary, until it was dealt with by her husband, because she wouldn't open the envelope or pay any attention to it. But that said, she was very aware of her filing obligations. She was aware that, you know, taxes had to be paid annually. She was aware that there was a tax liability. But again, it was a financial matter. She essentially decided that her spouse was in charge of all financial matters. And they'd been working the, this way for quite a while. So it comes up, and the other problem we went into is that Angeli was a bit, um, shall we say, paranoid about signing documents. Apparently, somewhere in her family, an uncle had tricked uh, his wife into signing documents uh, that she didn't know what they were, and... So Angeli was always, always very, very, very reluctant to sign a document. 
Now, her reluctance and her suspicion did not lead her to actually review a financial document that she was asked to sign and figure out what was in it. She just effectively would have refused to sign it. And apparently on those rare occasions where absolutely she had to be there, she had to sign it, uh, it apparently took lots and lots of work to convince her to sign a document. Okay, that's a key background here because she didn't trust it. She believed she could be taken advantage of. In fact, she specifically mentioned that she was concerned that, or some one of her relatives has said, and she was concerned about this, that maybe somebody would try to sneak, apparently that somebody would be her husband, would try to sneak a divorce document in front of her and have her sign it without her knowing what it was, and she would lose everything, right? They'd steal all of her money, whatever. It would be a disaster. So an interesting situation where she trusted her husband with all financial matters, but she did not trust her husband in terms of signing something that he suggested she sign, um, even to the extent of not, but still refusing to look at the document. So it's an odd situation. Now, you might think, well, obviously her husband knew every year she wasn't signing the returns. Well, that also isn't necessarily clear. This is a little, again, we said that this is a family used to some uh, very, shall we say, uh, affluent lifestyle living. And apparently very uh, used to having people take care of things for them. So generally, when the tax return was done, uh, Mr., you know, in this case, Ms., you know, Ohm, who was the husband, his staff would go ahead and prepare all the data, send that to the firm that was preparing the return. The firm would send the return back, and he would then hand it to the staff who would review it, look over it, have any questions. Eventually, the staff would approve it and present it for him to sit for signature, and he would sign it. And then, you know, he left it for the staff or his son to get the return signed by, you know, her, by Angeli. Okay. And after that was done, the staff would then post the return you know, send it off, mail it, or send in the e-file document, whatever it might be at that point in time. Now, apparently, Ohm never followed through to figure out how they would got Angeli's signature on the tax return. And it turns out the son admitted that at least for certain years and for certain documents, he had signed his mother's name. And also, apparently, it came up that for certain other documents, certain staff members had signed her name. Now, in all this time, she never asked to see anything about taxes. She just assumed they were being taken care of, and she didn't worry about it. I have to believe that probably early on, somebody did try to get her to sign the return. She refused to do so. And, you know, we know it was a big fight, etc. So presumably at some point, the staff, because I suspect that his theory was, well, we just need to get this taken care of. And you didn't really want to tell him that, well, you know, your wife's not really going to sign this. And, you know, it's your wife. Deal with the situation. You and her have an issue. You need to deal with this. Now nah, they just took care of it. And the son did the same thing, saying, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, mom, dad, you guys are parents. I'm child. Uh, you know, you guys need to take care of this among yourselves. So in any event, these returns kept being filed. Obviously, you know, eventually we end up with an exam. Now the courts start looking at this. You know, you might think it's a slam dunk. If she didn't sign the return, she has to consent to a joint filing. 
if her signature that purported to give that consent was forged, some might think, well, this should be a slam dunk, right? She essentially, you know, can go ahead and, you know, treat this as not a joint return, and the IRS would only have access to the husband's assets if there was any exam. But it's not quite that simple. And the reason is the law recognizes an issue. By being this detached, Angelie had not ever filed any returns on her own, right, to report her income. She had had that taken care of by her husband, and she had been rather actively, you know, remaining ignorant of whether or not all of this was actually being done properly. To a certain extent, he was as well. So, you know, ignorance was bliss, apparently. And let's be honest, she got an advantage for all those years until the exam year of not having the IRS chase her down, not having the IRS force her to, you know, do something, right, file a return, go through that whole process, which she didn't want to do, you know, and have to sign a return, which obviously she really didn't want to do. So she took advantage of that for many years. And again, until an issue came up, nobody worried about it. She had the advantage of not being chased down to wonder, where's your return? And, you know, the returns got done. So the law looks at a theory called tacit consent. You can elect to file a joint return if you give what's called tacit consent for another party to have effectively filed a joint return on your behalf, for your spouse to have essentially gotten a joint return filed. And that was what they were looking at here. We were looking at this issue. Had she given tacit consent? So the court says, essentially, we're going to look at a few issues here. Now, the first thing is they look at various factors. One of the factors they look at is, if both spouses were aware and had certainly agreed that one spouse would handle all the financial matters for the couple, that is a factor in favor of finding there was tacit consent. It's not sufficient by itself, but presumably you've told your spouse to just take care of everything. You're allowing a spouse to totally manage the financial affairs of the household the theory is that it's not as if this person is doing something you weren't aware of, right? Was taking care of tax issues and you weren't aware they were doing it. You know, you, you were planning to do something on your own. So that sets up a potential tacit consent that, you know, you were aware, you know, you decided the other party would take care of this, right? Which means you weren't taking care of this. And you knew that. You were aware of that, and you did it, right? Um, then, of course, we did this for the years after that. You know, for all these years, they, they filed jointly. So they filed jointly for many, many years. They had filed jointly for 2004 was year in question. They had filed jointly from 1993, essentially through at least 2014. They continued to file jointly. That was with the court. They still had some unfiled returns now with in front of the court. But at the time it went to the court, 2015, so from 1999 to 2015, 16 years, 
they had filed jointly and apparently under the same method. The fact that they had continually done this, it had been done for year after year after year after year with no obvious objection on her part to this filing, that also suggests tacit consent. Third, and what most often is the most damaging, is that the spouse who was aware returns needed to be filed, right? Who was aware there was something had to be done, who had their spouse was taking care of this, right? She never took any steps to indicate that she intended to handle her own tax matters, such as by filing separate returns. And apparently she would have had tax on some of those returns. It would have been, you know, reportable. And she never filed a separate return. She took no actions to indicate that she was going to handle her own tax matters. She was, in essence, riding along on that joint filing. Now, this makes a pretty solid case for tacit consent. In fact, when a case looks like this, about the only way you're going to get out of tacit consent is to have some really, really compelling facts arguing against it, such as the spouse who was filing the joint return was, shall we say, um, you know, filing a joint return was threatening the spouse in question, telling him or her that if they, you know, if they didn't shut up and just let them file a joint return, that, you know, they, they were going to have something bad happen. It could be physical violence. It could be emotional abuse. It could be many different things. But in essence, there would be coercion or there would be, um, you know, threats of physical violence that would be in there. But to be honest, even in those cases, it would be kind of interesting in a fact pattern like this. Um, you know, normally those who'd be that coercive and want a joint return would coerce the person to sign it. And, you know, obviously our issue here was she wasn't signing. It was also bad in this case that he, at least there, you know, the position of the taxpayer was strongly that he didn't know she hadn't signed. And that's actually to get to another point. It's not technically legal for somebody to forge their name on the tax return, right? I guess they didn't worry about the son being in trouble with this. They didn't want him in trouble. Uh, oh, so, you know, that's it. So this case, though, we need to make sure we understand and don't take this case too far. What this case does not stand for. Oh, by the way, ultimately, yes, she was found to have consented to a joint return even though she never signed it, and even though somebody else signed on her behalf. The court said, nope, Angelie, you, you consented to a joint return. You knew you had ta you knew a tax filing responsibility was there. You had assumed your husband would take care of it. You ignored letters from the IRS, even when they had your name on them, because you just, that was his thing. You know, it's like, you, and, and you just refused to read any financial data. You maintain, you essentially were, uh, actively maintaining your ignorance on the issue, that you just didn't care, it was boring, didn't want to deal with it. You know, you have a joint return here. Your assets are now at risk because you've consented, which somewhat is, is, is unique and ironic that she is in trouble for signing the return. Uh, she's in trouble, though, even though she didn't sign the return, right? Merely not signing didn't stop the problems from there you know, if it was deemed she had the consent.
But what this case does not do, though, is say it was okay for her son or any other third party to sign the return on her behalf. Uh, generally, there are very, very, very limited circumstances under which it is okay to sign a return for somebody else. Uh, extremely limited. And this clearly wasn't one of them, where she was unable to sign, uh, you know, etc. That wasn't one where it was okay. So this does not justify those controlling spouses who just want to sign it, you know, yeah, oh yeah, my spouse is unavailable right now, won't be back till Monday. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and put his or her signature on there for them. That's not okay, right? Still not okay. Can't do that. that that's not what's key. But the flip side of it is, remember that spouses, you know, we, have, we each have a responsibility for our tax situation. And spouses don't generally get out of it merely by becoming intentionally ignorant. Even under the innocent spouse rules, it's difficult when you are being actively ignorant. It's one thing if you just don't understand things or you're not as sophisticated as a spouse. There are cases where that'll work. But where a spouse just seeks to try to be intentionally ignorant and, you know, doesn't want to know how we're affording this lifestyle, you know, doesn't want to know those things because they're things they just don't want to know. Yeah, that doesn't work. Be aware this tacit consent rule is there and understand the risks you take whenever you agree to a joint return. You are putting your assets at risk. If it turns out there is a tax assessment that may relate to something, you know, something on the return, both of you are liable joint and severally for what's on that return. And joint and severally means that IRS does not have to split it between the two of you, right? If it turns out your assets are more collectible than her assets, right? My assets will say be more collectible than my wife's assets. They can take my assets. If my wife's assets are more collectible than mine, they can take hers. So, you know, understand a joint return puts it up to that level. So that is something to remember and something to recall. That's also why we get this whole conflict of interest problem. Joint returns are quirky for a lot of reasons. One of them being that we do have this joint and several liability issue, which I suspect a lot of taxpayers don't really know is happening when they sign a joint return. Okay. So essentially, tacit consent given. Uh, game, set, match over. Any tax due, they could take it from her assets. Now let's talk about a couple of bipartisan Budget Act centralized partnership audit regime rulings. The first one is IRS email chief counsel, email counsel advice of 2021-48006. This came out on December 3rd. And this is relates to the BBA regime. Now, under the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015, we set up rules for partnerships to say, in general, if a partnership return is examined and there is an adjustment made on a partnership item, Generally, if it is a positive item, you know, we will take that item and we'll net it against any negative items. And we will take that item then, that, that net positive adjustment, and multiply it by the highest individual rate, currently 37%. Right? 
That's the automatic. That bill then is presented to the partnership. And then the partnership has to take action to make certain adjustments to that for certain cases like some partners or corporations. So the C-Corp, so the rate should be 31%. Some partnerships, you know, let's say we have individuals as partners. Some the net positive adjustment is long-term capital gains or dividends. So we should be able to get 20% on that. Maybe some partners are exempt orgs. So we should be able to get 0% on that. But it's up to us to fix that. We have 270 days to fix it while interest and penalties continue to run. And then the IRS has another 270 days to review whatever we give them for that. Right? Again, with interest and penalties continuing to run, it gets kind of nasty at this point. Uh, we have potential issues in there. Now, the question became here, though, is what happens if on the exam the examining agent finds an adjustment to a monetary item, right? An item on the partnership return, it is clearly a partnership item. It is, you know, it, the partnership is responsible for the number. But it is a number that in the year in question will not generate additional income, deduction, credit, right? Gain, loss. What does the agent do with that adjustment? Because obviously we want to adjust that. We found a problem here. Maybe the uh, return had overstated basis, right, for an asset. And we've discovered overstated basis. So we want to reduce the basis by $100,000, but the asset wasn't sold this year. And, you know, what do we do about that? How, how do we adjust the basis down? Well, this advice says that generally, by default, any of these things we change are considered to be positive adjustments unless they meet the specific definition for negative, which does require a reduction in income, an increase in deductions, you know, a reduction of a gain, you know, increase of loss, etc., increase in a credit. If it is a negative adjustment, if it's a positive adjustment, if it's a an adjustment that's not a negative adjustment, it is by definition positive. Therefore, the, this advice rules that every time we have one of these adjustments, the partnership, we will have a 37% adjustment on that number change at the partnership level. The idea is that eventually, or maybe even in the past, it might have affected the numbers. The partnership will take over the new balance sheet now but we will charge the partnership 37% of that, of that difference. We'll charge it through to them as a positive adjustment. Now, this is a little quirky. They, they do say, okay, we realize that sometimes we have adjustments that are really this, you know, or offsets of the same thing. Like we might have increased the basis of an asset after decreasing a deduction for repairs. We took a repair, moved it into the asset. They said, in that case, you can treat one as zero, you know, where, 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 where it is correct, you know, where it would be reasonable, you would treat one of those as a zero adjustment, the other as a positive adjustment. Okay, good. I've got that. Now, they do talk about, though, they said, but you need to be careful of the difference between a partnership item and one that would require separate action outside of the partnership exam, right? 
So like they said, if you're adjusting a partnership's inside basis on assets, if there's an adjustment on inside basis, so things would go on Schedule L of the 1065, the entire adjustments contained in Schedule L has no impact on, you know, income, deduction, etc. That's what we're talking about here, something like basis of assets. They said, if you're concerned with the partner's basis in their interest outside the partnership, that's not part of BBA. That's a partner item that would require to have a, you know, a separate adjustment, separate exam outside the BBA process. BBA won't handle that. So important to understand that about the BBA. We have a second ruling here, which is IRS emailed advice. In this case, counsel advice, 2021-47-012 issued on November the 26th. And this advice asks a question. A partnership has an exempt org partner. They're going to file a 990. Right, 990, whatever. So they're going to file a 990, they're exempt org. Does that preclude the partnership from opting out of the bipartisan budget, uh, by the, the BBA, I should say, the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015, Centralized Partnership Audit, re audit Regime, what we call BBA audits now? And the question is asked because, as you should be aware, if you issue less than 100K1s, and you do not have a disqualifying partner at any point during the year, then the partnership can, on the originally filed 1065, including a superseding return, could elect to opt out of the Bipartisan Budget Act audit regime. We can opt out of the regime. Now, the question becomes, you know, what happens here? Because if we see the list of types, we're told you can opt out if you are an individual, right? If you're a corporation, if you're a foreign entity that may not be filing with U.S., but if it was required to file, would file as a corporation. You're in a state of a former partner, individual partner, right? Or you're an S corporation. You're allowed to, you know, the, the partnership can opt out. Well, what if one of your partners is an exempt org? And I'm sure the question is being asked, well, exempt org is not on the list. So does that bar them from filing? IRS says no. Here's the catch. And we see this specifically, too, on another side where, it, where things you think could opt out can't. Partnerships that could opt out can't opt out. What matters in terms of this filing is the entity type, not whether or not it is an exempt organization. In essence, in many ways, the tax treatment is not relevant in general. Rather, entity type is. So exempt orgs may be trusts or they could be corporations. If it's organized as a trust, then the partnership could not opt out because it would have a trust as a partner. If the, if the entity, though, more often we see them formed as corporations, a corporation that was an exempt organization that's taxed as an exempt org, that partnership could opt out because that's a corporate partner, allowing them for the opt-out. Now, I said kind of the flip side of this is, remember, if you have an individual that holds their interest in a revocable living trust, 
even though they are treated as owning all the assets inside that trust generally for tax purposes, the fact that the partnership is owned legally by the RLT, Revocable Living Trust, is going to bar you from opting out. Similarly, if you have a disregarded entity, a limited liability company, one-person LLC, you know, you put your partnership interest inside of one-person LLC, and then, and you know, you don't elect for that LLC to be a corporation, that's also going to bar you because, again, disregarded entities, the IRS has ruled, and this goes back to old rulings under TEFRA, that said under TEFRA, you weren't out under the automatic out rules of TEFRA. If you had a partner that was an LLC, single member LLC, or you had a, that was being disregarded, or you had a revocable living trust partner, you were under TEFRA. The same concept carried over to the BBA audit regime, right? So essentially, you look at the underlying type of the organization. Now, electing out is a big deal. And the IRS has been surprised. And from what I get from feedback, I'm getting from CPAs who suddenly discover how messy an amended return, a, a revised partnership return will not be amended. A revision of a partnership return is going to become, after you get past your last date for a superseding return, if you didn't opt out of BBA, that a lot of partnerships are eligible to opt out are failing to do so. I would be, I, if you're not, if you don't understand why you'd want to opt out and you do partnerships, you need to get yourself some training on the Bipartisan Budget Act rules and understand why you want to opt out if you can. Uh, it's really, really, there's, I see no advantage, and certainly some of the people I've talked with who've had to make these changes you know, had to go through the administrative adjustment request routine for a partnership that could have opted out but didn't. Yeah, it's way messier, way more trouble, and, you know, takes a lot more costs and time. Be sure you take a look carefully at that and consider, you know, that you're doing this correctly. But this email, which I believe is totally correct, to me it's totally consistent with the law, yeah, it doesn't matter if it's an exempt org, taxable or not taxable. If it's a corporation, you're fine. That's one of your, you know, less than 100 W2, 100 K1s, you're great. You can opt out, right? If, you're, if your exempt org is a trust, then you can't opt out. The partnership's stuck. So you'd have to find that out. Well, this has been the, ta this has been the update for this week. Uh, not as detailed as long as some of our others, but, you know, still, we had a few things happen. Useful to discuss these. The BBA is always uh, useful to discuss. Congress still not taking any real updates on There's no real update on action for Congress. They dealt with the government shutdown last week. So, essentially, you know, they've still got other things. The debt ceiling still in play. Not clear when or if they'll get to it. I think it's rather optimistic the majority leaders believe that they'll vote on it by Christmas, so we'll see. I think it'll be close to Christmas if they do. And then we still don't know that the House is going to accept that. So just keep that in mind as you work on all the tax planning this month. We've got lots of uncertainty. Again, we'll be back next week talking to you about whatever goes on that week for tax updates. Uh, be sure to, if you have any questions, you can email me. I have comments, edzollers at currentfilltaxedopens.com. Uh, also, am online. Uh, as I say, for the Connect groups, for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, and Washington. Take a look at those groups. Also, Idaho's discussion groups that they have online for the Society of CPAs. So those CPA societies, I do monitor their 
their areas. Uh, also, like I say, we're going to take a look at what's going up here, right? What's happening now. Uh, see what new developments come up this week. Keep our eye on legislation, but don't expect great movements. My guess is it'll just sit there, do nothing, nothing, nothing. But then when they do, if they do finally get an agreement, it'll come through very rapidly. So just be aware things could change. It could be very, very boring and nothing happens or it could change in an instant. So just take care and watch out for that. But otherwise, uh, hopefully you've had a good week. I hope you will uh, have a good week going forward as we start working on more tax planning, tax planning engagements now coming up to this time of year. And we'll talk to you next week here on Current Federal Tax Developments.